Good afternoon and welcome back to the Bituda Advocate radio show. My name is Errol Parker. This afternoon we are going to revisit the podcast we recorded a few weeks ago with Headley Thomas, the creator behind the Teacher's Pet podcast. We're going to revisit this this afternoon because in case you haven't already seen in the news, the subject of the Teacher's Pet podcast, Chris Dawson, uh, is set to be extradited from Queensland to New South Wales where he is expected to be charged with the murder of his former wife, Lynette Dawson. So without further ado, we felt it pertinent to revisit this podcast in light of recent events. Enjoy. You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of The Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, here we are with Headley Thomas, uh, Australian investigative journalist, um, the researcher and reporter and voice behind the new uh, podcast, Teacher's Pet. Uh, first Aussie podcast to go number one in the US, 10 million downloads. Headley, did you think you were going to get this much of a following behind your, the story that you've been following? No, I was worried it was going to be a big fail. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to tell the story over you know a number of episodes but uh, i didn't know how to make a podcast and uh, when i first wrote the script for it i think it was pretty ordinary um and then i think just you know people started realizing there was a terrible injustice at the heart of the story and uh, maybe they were interested also in hearing you know um behind the scenes what happens when a journo, you know, gets um, transfixed in a, in a yarn and yep. starts following it and talks to all sorts of people connected to it. And uh, we had some, you know, really good material, but we had, I think, um, the authenticity of members of Lynn Dawson's family and, you know, you could identify with the, them you know, and their loss and... People had lots of questions, and we tried to answer as many as possible. And a series that was, you know, maybe going to be six or eight episodes ended up becoming fourteen. And yeah, it was ten million downloads a while back, but um, I think it's seventeen now. And, right. Yeah. yeah. So just for the for the nine people in this country who <laughs> who haven't heard it, what's the teacher's pet about? Yeah, it revolves around a mum called Lynn Dawson who was thirty three when she disappeared from her home up at Bayview on Sydney's northern beaches. And she was a mother of two little girls, age four and two, and she was married to Chris Dawson, and he's an identical twin. Uh, his brother Paul Dawson and Chris played uh, first-grade rugby league for the Newtown Jets through the 70s. Um, they were pin-up footballers for eastern suburbs before then, in, in rugby union and they modelled and they were school teachers yeah. and really popular charismatic guys um, in the high schools on the northern beaches you know they were heartthrobs um, and they were also um, quite predatory with schoolgirls they had that creepy twins thing going on as well like yeah know, identical well, that, and that was one of the features of this story they were exceptionally close yeah uh, People who talked to me about um, Chris and Paul, who got to know them pretty well, played football with them, lived next door to them, said, look, 
they'd known lots of twins, but they'd never known twins like Chris and Paul in terms of the closeness of their relationship. Yeah. And it was that close that they actually uh, enjoyed having uh, sex with with a you know with a female together. Together, mm-hmm. yeah, which. You know, you Which imagine, is exceptionally close. Well, having yeah. having sex with someone with your sibling, you know, yeah. it's weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then and and that's just kind of scraping the surface on these guys, really, isn't it? It's just yeah. The, the more you go into this story, um, yeah, the more the more you find out, and 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 more uh, you realise that they they were capable of. Now, there's so many elements to this story that actually appeal to um, you know a wider audience, and it's quite nostalgic when you think about that puberty blues era, you know, with the heartthrob teachers, everyone's living on the beach, and then there's the rugby league element of you know back in New South Wales rugby league. Did, did you find that um, you know there were a lot of there's a little bit of glory days about these, yeah. some of these characters? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know it was a trip down memory lane for a lot of people, um, me included. I I'm 51. I went to Gold Coast High School, and you know, in 1984, I finished Year 12. Um, in 1982, you know, Lynn Dawson suddenly vanished, and so for a lot of people, being taken back to you know um, their school days is is really nostalgic and 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 interesting. But it also coincided with you know events that. Um, in Australian history were amazing and during the um, the investigation research phases for the teacher's pet and when we, I was putting together um, one episode in particular which dealt with Lynn Dawson's final seven days before you know I believe she was murdered in her home at Bayview and uh, you know I was looking for events that were occurring around that time and you know, in addition to you know that famous um, test with the Windies, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you also had um, the Azaria Chamberlain case, yeah, and, right. and I heard that grab again with Lindy Chamberlain saying, you know, a dingo took my baby, and yeah. I hadn't heard it for years, and you know, I really think that when you hear that and when you haven't heard it for ages, it's one of those those comments, those grabs that you know is um, yeah, it can be pretty moving actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, particularly seeing what ended up happening with that mm. whole thing, because I guess that grab when it first came into everyone's, uh, you know, uh, peripheral was a bit of a joke, and then we saw more and more come yeah. out of that whole thing. Uh, do you find that might have been a bit similar with this family, with the Dawsons? Do you feel like there was a lot of uh, dismissiveness at the start? Uh, yeah, I think it's sort of uh, actually kind of in reverse in that with the Lindy Chamberlain case, many Australians rushed to judge and condemn her and I think believe that, you know, she was the murderer of her daughter, her baby girl, and her appearance and, you know, her religiousness and and other things no doubt influenced that. Whereas I I think when Lynn disappeared, uh, Chris Dawson uh, should have been suspected of foul play, uh, but um, he was... You know, in amongst a lot of his friends, it seems anyway, um, um, pitied. Yeah. You know, as if his wife had just run away and left her kids, and yeah. and um, he had good police mates, and they looked after him. Yeah. They played footy with him. 
Um, so he had a he had a he had a completely different look. He wasn't a he wasn't some spiritual hippie roaming around all the room. He was he was just a stand up ex league player from the beaches, right? Yeah, well, up up to a point. I mean, he he was a um, you know role model for many people, but uh, he had been having an affair with one of his uh, students from Cromer High School for the previous fourteen months, leading up to when his wife just suddenly vanished, and then when she disappeared. Uh, he moved that schoolgirl. He fetched her from Southwest Rocks, where she was having like a schoolies holiday, camping trip with friends her own age. Drove up there and brought her back, and she was living in the house, you know, sleeping in Lynn's bed within you know two days of what two coroners believe was Lynn's murder. Yeah. So, you, do you feel? Do you feel like at the time there were people thinking it's it's a bit funny the way? He, were people thinking about that? Were people even talking about it? And did they even know about his relationship with these girls? Or was that just part of the culture? Yeah, this is the weird thing. So many people have told me mm. that, um, you know, people on the northern beaches, that they did suspect wrongdoing. And you know, former students of Cromer High who would, you know, who knew Mr Dawson as the sports teacher, who knew Joanne as his girlfriend, they said that, you know, oh, well, um, Mrs. Dawson's under the pool. She was murdered and she's buried under the swimming pool. Um, and, you know, Lynn's friends also suspected wrongdoing. But unfortunately, uh, the police didn't pursue, you know, obvious kind of possible, possible leads. They didn't go and knock on neighbours' doors. They didn't follow up with Lynn's friends, you know, at her workplace. And Lynn's family, Lynn's um, brother, uh, Greg, and another brother, Phil, and sister, Pat, they lived in other parts of the state. And Lynn's mother, uh, Helena, she lived down at Clovelly. And they weren't talking to Lynn's friends on the northern beaches. So there wasn't information sharing. I mean, these days with yeah. Facebook and yeah. mobile phone, yeah, you'd know in a heartbeat, you know, that there was something up with this. But back then, um, you know, we're, we're talking sort of you know, before people even were using mobile phones. Yeah, picnics, really, wasn't it? Yeah, That's how you'd catch yeah, up. yeah. yeah. One would think you've kind of spent your lifetime on this. I imagine you've spent a lot of time on this. What was it like? What's it like dealing with the ex-rugby league community from, from that era, particularly the pre-professional kind of everyone either became a cop or a teacher, yeah. a pub owner or a pokey rep? Is there a bit of a brotherhood when, you, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff there? Yeah, yeah. there, there is. Um, I, uh, I was really lucky in that um, I had some good um, friends who were able to help me you know, get contact numbers for people like Paul Broughton. Um, and, you know, I, I played a bit of rugby league, not very well, you know, on, on the Gold Coast. And my sister, Rebecca, she ended up um, becoming chair of the Gold Coast Titans and right. now is like a co-owner of that team. And yeah. so right. she was able to, you know, give me a bit of a steer. And I talked to people like Maddie Johns about the case and and uh, Gordon Tallis. And yeah. they were fascinated and they were able to sort of, you know, suggest different people I might talk to for background and... Um, and then bit of a telegraph within them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was great. And and everyone remembers the Dawson twins from the seventies when they you know played for Newtown. Very and blonde. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They were, and they were you know very handy players. Um, I'm not a sort of rugby league tragic in that. Yeah. I couldn't tell you, you know, yeah. who's who on the ladder and you know how that's all going. But I, you know, I guess I bluffed my way through that part yeah. of it. 
And I think a lot of people along the way during the investigations and, and the interviews, you know, they saw an opportunity uh, so many years after the fact to solve a case that clearly had troubled them for some time. I haven't heard from anybody throughout this uh, past 10 months who's said to me, you've really stitched up mm. an innocent man here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And there have been so many hundreds and hundreds of phone calls and emails and contacts and Facebook messages from people offering information. And I'm not suggesting that that is, you know, some sort of black and white barometer of of the righteousness or, yeah. you know, the uh, likely uh, guilt, in my view, of mm-hmm. Chris Dawson. But um, I think it's really interesting that he has taught, you know, no doubt thousands of teenagers um, he's played football with hundreds of blokes, yeah. you know, where they've really had to. There's got to be a few people bond that again. A good egg, yeah, yeah. No one has said, "Mate, that's outrageous." He would never have done that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not like you know, so, so many other crimes. Yeah, uh, yeah. that kind of happen. So, what have people been saying? You know, um, you've had this this investigation come out. It's been all in the public, um, and people have been writing to you. Have they been? offering up anything significant to the point where, you know, there could be a reopening of the investigation? Yeah, they have offered a lot of new information, um, new witnesses who didn't go forward, didn't contact police over the years, didn't talk to, you know, the two coroners who ran the inquests in 2001 and 2003. You know, they've come forward with individually important pieces of evidence one of the more important witnesses to come forward was a woman called Beverly Staniforth, and she was at Cromer High, and she knew Joanne, and, and she was good friends with Lynn and Chris Dawson because she had been babysitting in their home at Bayview and got to know the girls well and was really fond of Chris, liked him mm. a lot, saw him as a, a good man who you know provided for his family and easy to get along with, and that's another thing a lot of the students do say. The boundaries between Chris and Paul Dawson and the students were really significantly broken down. They wanted to be friends rather than, you know, having that kind of yeah, those, position yeah, of authority. Cool teachers, yeah. yeah, yeah, they were cool teachers. So Beverly saw uh, what she described as really rough treatment by Chris of Lynn, and that was significant because so many other... Oh, domestic... Uh, domestically at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, um, rough shoving that made her cry, sort of pushed her into a doorway and another time whipped her with a towel and, you know, across her back and um, just in a, in a flash of anger. And and so she she came forward and she was crying when she was describing that um, because she felt guilty that she hadn't raised it earlier, um, hadn't pressed it, although she'd... She said she'd contacted Crime Stoppers, but they didn't call her back. Um, and uh, she also felt some guilt that she didn't prevent events, even though she couldn't have. She was a teenager, but, you know, that was all playing on her mind. So she was she was significant. There have been um, a number of others who have led me into areas where, you know, we've been able to find fresh documentation that was really, um, I think, you know, a tipping point in this whole case. Yeah. And one of these key documents was a, a handwritten statement that Chris wrote to the police in August 1982, seven months after Lynn disappeared. And in that statement, Chris lies about 
you know, some really fundamental facts. He you know, just sort of airbrushes out of existence the, the fact that he was having an intense sexual relationship with Joanne Curtis. And he says that his wife, you know, was distressed and they were having problems in their marriage because, you know, she was spending a bit of money on her bank card. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, lies about the fact that he went to Queensland a couple of days before Christmas ostensibly to start a new life with Joanne. They, they didn't work out. They turned back and Linda disappeared a fortnight later. But the omission of those key facts, when he's trying to tell police give them information supposedly that'll help them find Lynn you know is very bad for his credibility in the event of a prosecution it's known as a consciousness of guilt yeah he does a prosecutor would argue that he lied because he knew that if he had told the truth they would take a closer interest in what had happened and possibly charge him with murder so that was a document that had not been known to the the DPP, after the first two inquests, uh, wasn't known to earlier police investigations and, you know, just through a bit of luck and design, flushed it out of state archives where it had been sitting with uh, an investigation file that the ombudsman, the state ombudsman, had possession of when one of Lynn's friends complained in 1985 that the cops weren't taking the case seriously. Right. Yeah. Mm. So has there been any renewed interest from the authorities? Yeah, there's significant interest. The police certainly want to charge Chris Dawson with murder. Yeah, the police hopelessly botched this case through the 80s, and I think... You don't think there was a conspiracy at all? Do you think it was just... Uh, do you think it might have just been the one that slipped through through incompetence? Or? Yeah, I'm... I think it was certainly gross incompetence, but... Uh, I think given some of the facts of this case um, and then the the, um, the complaint that one of Lynn's friends put in, in writing to the state ombudsman accusing the police of not doing their jobs properly and they still didn't do their jobs properly, I think that, you know, it's possible that it was, you know, sinister, that it was more than incompetence. Um, but it's really difficult to, to prove that because... The cops who were directly involved, some of them are dead or, yeah. you know, they've lost their marbles yeah. and, you know, it's really hard to reconstruct that. But the police now and, you know, for many years have wanted to charge Chris Dawson with murder and other offences, including, you know, sexual abuse of... Yeah, I guess all that stuff is, yeah, all that stuff is sitting there as well. Yeah, but the, what's held them back is um, the office of the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, has consistently said that there was insufficient evidence to meet their test to charge for murder. Now, there's a stronger brief of evidence. You know, I think the DPP is probably, if they apply all their usual principles, likely to agree that a prosecution uh, should proceed. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah, but in saying that, though, now that this is probably one of the most popular podcasts of the year, do you think you'd be able to get a jury that hasn't listened to the podcast (laughs) (laughs) well uh yeah i do i think that uh they would just select jurors carefully and ask them have you listened to you know the teacher's pet um and if you haven't it's available on all good platforms (laughs) um but um no they would select carefully and and find the jurors who hadn't and then there's also the option of a um judge alone trial yeah and i'm sure there'd be some 
judges who hadn't listened to it. Yeah. Um, and I don't subscribe or buy the theory that, you know, um, because of a journalistic investigation, someone can't get a fair trial. You know, I think defence lawyers like to run around and, you know, trot that argument out um, willy-nilly, but usually it doesn't fly. And the High Court has consistently ruled that, you know, a jury that has been properly instructed can certainly, in a case of great prominence, deliver yeah. justice and be fair. Now, just quickly, before we kind of move on to, um, you know, the, some of the other stuff you've done in your career, what is happening with the house? You know, mm. who owns it now? Surely they must know how many people are waiting for them to just to open up their property. To Yeah. Yeah, this is a beautiful property um, in Gilwinga Drive, Bayview, and I was only up there the other day. Chris and Lynn built the house up there, and, you know, it's worth two and a half million dollars plus and uh, the current owners have only been there a year and it was going to be their retirement home so and they've they've got people who have listened to the podcast and have become pretty obsessed with the case like the level of interest from people who never knew um, Lynn and Chris people you know who who never um, been to baby before and now they're doing drive-bys you know the house and um and so the owners, I think, you know, have been watching this and I've felt a lot of pity for them. Um, I've talked to them. You know, they'll probably see police up there digging yeah. on in areas of that property that, you know, weren't dug properly in the past. And that might uh, yield um, further evidence. There was a dig in 2000 which recovered uh, a cardigan. Lynn's yeah. um, neighbour, Julie Andrew, said that uh, that was Lynn's favourite pink cardigan, and it had multiple cut marks in it, consistent with stabbing. Um, according to Bob Gibbs, who was the scientific officer on that dig, and he told me that that dig concluded prematurely um, for uh, budgetary reasons. Right, and you know, he said. I hadn't heard this phrase for ages. He said, oh, we were spewing, mate. We were spewing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he said um, he thought it was possible that they'd missed Lynn Dawson's remains by just a few feet, you know. And just a few thousand dollars probably as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, crazy stuff like that. And you know, I think people hearing the episodes, and certainly for me, you know, um, discovering these things, you're left shaking your head sometimes at how... Um, authorities conduct investigations um, or don't and I I know there are many fantastic examples of great detective work, great policing great prosecuting and I don't want to generalise but in this case there's just been a litany of failure and Mm. disaster incompetence um, lack of disclosure Um, I mean the, the current DPP Lloyd Babb, you know, um, who's been in that job since 2011, he he was in the football team at Asquith Boys College, you know, that was coached by Chris and Paul. And <laughs> he didn't think that that was something he needed to disclose yeah. to Lynn Dawson's family. And yeah. it came out in the podcast. And, you know, they were just shattered. I mean, they couldn't yeah. believe it. And it's not suggesting that Lloyd Babb has done anything untoward. That's... Mm. No, not where I'm going at all. It's you just, know, it's a direct link. But, but, yeah. but, but you got to you got to disclose that yeah. sort of stuff to ensure that um, people you know have confidence in the system. Yeah. yeah, particularly when that when Lynn's family have been, in my view, treated so badly. You know, let down, 
at every turn. Yeah. Well, if you look up and down the charts now, on sort of more often than not, most of the podcasts which are up the top are, are true crime ones. And then you've got on Stan and, and Netflix and all of those ones, all the shows that you often see up the top there are crime-related. Mm. It's Did almost you? a renaissance yeah. um, that I guess you've timed with as well. It's kind of like a, you've been working on this forever. And you've um, just it, you're in a climate now where everyone wants to know about these yeah. kind of things. Do you find? Do you think that's kind of helped the uh, the interest? Or oh yeah, I uh, first wrote about Lynn Dawson seventeen years ago, so it was early two thousand and one, and I was then um, working as a features writer for the Courier Mail in Brisbane, and the first inquest was on, and I, I started reading some newspaper articles about. You know, the evidence coming out in that inquest and I thought it was just fascinating and I mm-hmm. um, persuaded the boss to let me fly to Sydney meet the cops who were involved in it and you know interview some members of Lynn's family and then I read parts of the police brief or most of it in one of the police stations up there on the northern beaches and you know, I wrote a big piece about it and then you know I always thought that I would revisit the case one day I kept everything um from the case in a you know in a carton in the roof of my carport at home in Brisbane and uh, late last year late 2017 when I was keen to do a podcast but didn't really know how you'd you'd, you'd do a podcast series and I uh, my father had, had died and I was looking for some new challenge you know he was always a great mentor and and uh, you know kept me um, grounded and focused and so on. Was he media? Was he- no, he was um, a yeah, military pilot. Right. Yeah. You know, he sailed and, you know, he was quite brilliant. And, but he he, um, he passed away and, and so this idea, I had this idea that I would um, revisit the Lynn Dawson case and try and reinvestigate it and maybe find new evidence that could solve it because... You know, I have to be honest, I didn't um, start investigating this case with a completely, you know, 50-50 view as to whether or not Chris Dawson might have been innocent. Yeah. I was, if I found evidence suggesting that he was innocent, that would have been really prominent. Mm. But I agreed with the two coroners yeah, right. who yeah. said that he should be prosecuted for murder. And I believed that based on the evidence I'd read all those years ago and the contact that I'd had over the years with Lynn's sister, uh, Pat, yeah, so when, when that idea started to sort of take hold, I, I was really keen to launch and, and get into it. And yeah. you know, I was really fortunate that Lynn's family remembered me. You know, they'd kept, yeah. kept the article all those years and trusted me to sort of tell it. But yeah. they didn't know what a podcast was, and yeah. I didn't know how to make one. And that funny little app on my iPhone, you know, when I wanted to listen to something interesting, I'd Google yeah. you know, BBC History Podcast rather than yeah. Go, yeah. go to the app. So. Yeah. It's been a bit of an accidental uh, success. Perfect yeah. medium for it. Mm. Um, now, can you just tell us, you kind of grew up, like you said, early 80s, you were finishing school down mm. there in the Gold Coast. That was a big time for journalists as well um, in Queensland. You know, you had uh, Moonlight State. You had, uh, you know, in the 80s anyway, you had journalists were doing a lot more work than than police were um, mm. in, in exposing certain kind of uh, elements. And there was a government brought down pretty much around the work of journalists is it was that kind of got into your head were you inspired by the moonlight state kind of stuff that was happening there sir joe fitzgerald inquiry yeah i, I was um 
And, you know, it was a remarkable time. I, um, you know, I, I love a punt um, and always have. So I started going to the races when I was probably 14, 15. A mate of mine um, w- wanted to be a jockey. And so he, he got an apprenticeship then and I used to help muck out stables. And so, you know, one thing led to another. And when I was still at high school, we'd be backing the favourite and then doubling down, you know, um, after jumping the fence at the Gold Coast races. And that was unlawful you know we were underage and then you know in Cavill Avenue there was an illegal casino and it had free drinks yeah you know, obviously to <laughs> encourage gambling so you know I, I would be glad mum and dad aren't around to hear this but I would be 16 17 and be uh playing blackjack and enjoying you know bourbon and coke for Put free white shoes on yeah, yeah in this dodgy little casino above the gelati bar in <laughs> Cavill Ave and and then I became um, a copy boy straight out of high school at the Gold Coast Bulletin. And Chris Masters, um, I was initially in sport, but then Chris Masters started his um, um, work around the same time as Phil Dickey from the Courier Mail yeah. was doing his work. And, you know, there was this incredible focus on, on police corruption. The Courier Mail played a big part in that. Played a really big part. And I was... Um, not at the Courier Mail until mid-1988, but because of those experiences with illegal casinos and, and, and they must have been paying local cops uh, money, um, uh, I, I, I probably bandwagoned a bit and ended up pissing off all my maids by doing a story on the illegal casino. The the yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, look, it was a remarkable period and, and you know, watching police officers at really high rank mm. go into the witness box mm. roll over yeah. you know um, and tell all about you know the thousands of dollars mm. that they would receive in bribes all the way to the police commissioner you know who was Sir Terence Lewis yeah they're all knighted all those fellows were knighted mm. <laughs> and you know so one of the great um expressions that sort of stood the test of time because it's been 30 years came out of um, Terry's mouth um, and it was used to describe according to Jack Herbert the amounts of money that he would receive so that Jack Herbert was the bag man yeah. he was moving the money around yeah. from the cribs yeah. to the cops in that's Brisbane. right yeah. he yeah. was responsible for, for for distributing the dough and and the police commissioner of course would um, receive some of this dough and and Terry you know, tried to take money in sort of smaller increments, but you know regularly, according to Jack Herbert, and Terry's explanation to Jack Herbert, um, if I remember this correctly, um, was um, "little fish are sweet," and I just love that saying, <laughs> "little fish are sweet." You know, it's it's uh, when you're talking about graft and yeah, and. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but it was an era of um, incredible journalism. You know, Chris Masters and, and Phil Dickey were brilliant. And, um, and I think it must have left a powerful you know, impression mm. on many journalists, yeah. myself included, you know, wet behind the ears, very junior, but keen to emulate those journalists. And also, when you consider that the corruption, not just of the police force, but of the government in those years had occurred when there were really good journalists 
working in Queensland, but somehow it had happened. I think it made or helped influence journalists such as myself to be more rugged, more robust, because you didn't want to have this legacy again like you know the protesters were the same the protesters were going harder than anyone else in the country the the music was all it was everyone was kind of indirectly kind of um ramped up weren't they yeah 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 it um and it almost is like you were almost a bit too good at your job because then they moved you uh (laughs) to the uk yeah i i uh out of everyone's hair down there in the in the southeast. <laughs> yeah, I was um, 22, and uh, it was mid 89. And, and the editor of the Courier Mail said, "How would you like to go and work in the London bureau um, for for News Limited?" And I yeah. was, "How old were you?" 22. Oh, <laughs> and I'd never been overseas before. You know, <laughs> Stradbroke Island was about it. And um, well, look, I, I was born in the US. I was born in Texas, but I was yeah. a child, a very small child when I came back. And so, yeah, that was an amazing opportunity. And I thought I must have been, you know, pretty special to have got that gig. But I was told by a couple of the guys I became mates with in the London Bureau when it was a really big bureau that. Um, you know, I should get a grip that I was actually the cheapest because I had no right. family to take over. <laughs> <laughs> there were no no big houses to sort of you know fund. Yeah. Um, a little flat in Clapham would do it. Yeah, no, no um, school for yeah. the kids. No, nothing like that. Oh, I didn't have to go business class. They could have strapped me to the wing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. So um, talking to Michaela Whitbourne. Fairfax investigative journalist. We're talking about, you know, this shit quite often. If for her, she finds um, she, she's quite uh, ruthless with the stuff she's been doing. She doesn't really think about it affecting um, her life. That's part of the game. If if you can get exposed yeah. by journalists, then you you lose kind of thing. That's that was her thinking. I think McClymont's a bit the same. Um, Chris Masters, I know, during all that investigation was you know at risk, and there was talk of intercepts of you know underage kids being put in hotel rooms to kind of stitch him up and that kind of stuff have you ever seen people playing dirty with the stuff you've been chasing yeah yeah i've uh, i've had um you know some um nasty threats um and i didn't pay much attention to the threats because i always figured that people who threaten weren't serious the people who were serious you wouldn't know about you just yeah. Get a bullet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Open the door one day. But then, you know, one night we did get the bullets. Um, and so, yeah, it was, um, you know, about uh, uh, 16 years ago. Um, on the job in Queensland? Yeah. my Well, we went on the job. We'd, we'd been, um, my wife and I were at home in bed, but I think we'd just watched Late Line and gone to bed. It was a really windy night blowing a gale outside and I thought that a massive branch had fallen from one of the trees outside onto the carpool roof yeah. near our bedroom because I said oh Christ what was that and Ruth said oh there's glass all over me and um, just trying to compute what was going on so I went outside and the neighbours were outside and and they said um, the car's just sped off um, you know, there've been shots fired, and and uh, the glass that was over my wife Ruth was uh, the fragments from the hole in the the window above our heads. 
where the bullet had come through and then smashed into the, the bathroom wall and uh, another three bullets were fired and one went through you know, my, my children's um, playroom. My kids were really young at that time. Another bullet you know, went into the roof and another one overhead somewhere and, and suddenly you know, it sort of brought it home. Well, you know, who's done that? Um, which story did they do it over? Yeah. Uh, what was that about? And we never got to the bottom of it. And the police, they had a task force um, um, for some weeks or months and uh, looked into lots of different angles and theories. And unfortunately, um, while I think there are probably three you know, prime suspects based on the stories I was doing at that time, there wasn't sufficient evidence for them to, to charge any one person. And um, it went unresolved. But it was a really difficult period and it went on for a while and I think I was probably at a bit of a crossroads afterwards um, because I felt like I couldn't um, know whether it would happen again. Yeah. Especially not knowing what it was over. That's yeah. not very effective if they're just saying stop working altogether. Yeah. 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 Jesus. You've done a lot of different kind of stuff, mm. you know, from, from obviously from organised crime to um, Dr Patel mm. was one that you kind of – and, and – come to think of it, yeah. we're probably behind uh, mm. bringing that to light. Uh, I know it was, it was well, in the news a lot. About you certainly got the Walkley for it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, were you the first to scratch the top on that? Yeah, I was, yeah. Right. And uh, Dr. Death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the nurses called him Dr. Death. Yeah, that was a um, remarkable yeah. yarn. And, you know, it had a long tail. But um, what happened was these nurses in Bundaberg, were at their wits end because they'd tried to complain to, you know, the doctor bosses and others about the new surgeon in charge at Bundaberg Base Hospital and and they weren't being heard and they felt that the patients were being significantly harmed and sometimes dying as a result of, you know, his poor judgment, um, poor operation skills and so on. And I went up there and uh, I met... Um, Tony Hoffman, who was the senior nurse at the hospital, and she invited some of her other colleagues over. It was this secret meeting in her house in Bundaberg, and um, you know, it was after work. So I said, "Look, I'll bring some food over." And I went to this, you know, Indian restaurant where Dr. Patel was one of his favourites, and 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 I ordered, you know, you know, half a dozen really good curries, and took them over to to Tony's house, and and I was just. Um, floored, you know, while we were sort of eating, they were talking about what would what had been going on, and you know, they struck me as incredibly um, sincere, um, credible, consistent. You know, they weren't. It wasn't personal. It wasn't racist. They were just really worried, and they were in tears at times, of describing what what had gone on. So right towards the end of the night, when um, one of the nurses made this comment, and she said he didn't become. A bad surgeon overnight and I was like well what do you what do you mean by that you know and she said well he's always been a bad surgeon and he must have been a bad surgeon where he's previously practiced and he he was an American surgeon and so I said well does that mean there might be kind of like a record of prior history you know bad outcomes mishaps and so on and she said yes so I went back to the motel just thinking I bet you there's something there i couldn't wait for the next morning to come so i could start you know digging into that and i got a flight back to uh, to brisbane 
from Bundaberg. It's not a long way to drive, but got into the office uh, at Bowen Hills. And this was in, in the days when, I know it seems ridiculous now, but journalists didn't immediately do a Google search in 2005 as soon as they heard something yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like now it's like, yeah. you know. I bet a Google yeah, I met yeah. I met a girl in a bar, I'll Google it, you know. Who is on she? my phone, on the way. Yeah, you know? so uh, I went, <laughs> um, if I took my laptop up, it wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. I probably didn't have that get capability. Back, get back so, went back to the office, you know, yeah. go to the desktop and and started um, using Google. And then I found Dr. Patel's disciplinary history in um, this U.S. state. Um, it was in both New York State as well as... Uh, it was that easy. In Oregon. And it was there. It was online. And this was after he'd been there two years. He'd been hired as a director of surgery. He'd got through all the checks and balances. He'd lied his head off about his prior disciplinary history. He'd been, he'd been prevented from performing surgery in the U.S. He had a shocking record. And he'd got through all the hoops with the medical board of Queensland and all the bureaucrats had been telling me and the nurses, no, no, this is a witch hunt of a good doctor. And then suddenly we flush this out and away yeah. it goes. And I remember the headline, you know, why didn't they check? And we we, we um, splashed the paper that, that night and the next day and I wrote a feature as well. And it was that simple. It was a, yeah, it was a Google search. I mean, I would love to say there was this really deep, intense six month investigation, yeah. but like, I thought I had to be upfront. Right? Yeah. Look, the right outcome was that he was discovered. And I think because people understood that it was a simple Google search yeah, yeah. that discovered this, it, well, the story became more powerful. That's you know? the yeah. time, right? Yeah. This, uh, but just tell us quickly, he wasn't. A phony. He was just an incredibly shit surgeon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, he may have had once good skills. Yeah, yeah. But he had fallen foul of authorities in the U.S. because of the outcomes from his surgery. A lot of people had but been he had studied, right? He had yeah, studied yeah. Medicine. He, yeah. He he had studied um, in in India and in the U.S. and he'd been properly qualified as a surgeon. He just had. It was not a good surgeon, and it became worse. And the story took me to India. Mm. It took me to um, Portland, Oregon, where he worked before he came to Australia, as well as to uh, uh, New York, because there was a Royal Commission-style inquiry mm. that the Queensland government set up into it. Peter Beattie ordered that. And then uh, there was a huge amount of evidence of cover-ups in the whole hospital system through, through that process. Um, once the lawyers began interrogating the bureaucrats and, and the doctors who had been become part of a system which was delivering outcomes that looked good for politicians' shiny press releases but were not good for yeah. um, patient care. There was you know, an ongoing sense of disgust that the system had been allowed to you know, become captured by politicians who were lying about the yeah. waiting lists, how long people would really wait for procedures, outcomes... And the Medical Board of Queensland, which was meant to be this sort of vetting um, They've had a few claims, haven't they? they? Remember there was a, about yeah. five years ago, was the Tahitian prince that... Yeah, that yeah the, the, oh, the, the money, money out, of the, out of the health department. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, uh, and, and you know, every now and then you'll find someone on the Most Wanted turns up in the back of Weeper working in the medical for Queensland Health. It's yeah, Did you find people can manipulate bureaucracy... Yeah. Just. Well, I think um, people can certainly manipulate bureaucracy because often bureau bu bureaucracy is 
just completely inept. Yeah. You know? And one of the lessons for me as a journalist that I keep relearning is that, you know, you should always assume that the bureaucrats have completely stuffed things up. You know? yeah. And don't yeah. think that logic necessarily is the you know driving kind of force in a bureaucracy assume the opposite you'll usually be kind of vindicated that's a terrible generalization it's just been in my experience yeah it happens too many times yeah right well just one thing we should ask you before we all go is there's probably millions of people around the world now who are wondering what's the next project for the bloke who brought yeah. the teacher's pet Cat Society murders. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, there have been um, some really good ideas um, raised by other people you know, that I think could be compelling. I haven't landed on it yet. I want to actually spend quite a bit more time on the teacher's pet because I, I think yeah. there's um, more there and I don't want to get distracted uh, before I tie that one up. But I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate in journalism because mm. some of the, the really exciting stories that uh, have come my way you know, have made a big difference and have been fascinating for people. And I think that's been one of the great highs of this craft, you know. <laughs> it's just a, just a blessing. Just, you know, the teacher's pet came when I was sort of at a bit of a crossroads in terms of working out what yeah. I was going to do in journalism or whether I was going to try and do something completely different for a while after um, my dad passed So wonderful job to have i'm not great at sort of you know working in an office and <laughs> coming in every day at a certain time but i'll put in longer hours than yeah. just about anyone and, and they might be at a coffee a shop 14, and, yeah. 14 series podcast yeah. 70 million downloads <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, just 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 as we wrap mm. where are chris and paul right now and is that kind of what piqued your interest because i heard they were up where you're from yeah they uh they are they're at um a very aptly named suburb called Runaway Bay, <laughs> uh, which is on the Gold Coast. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Chris usually lives at Coolum on the Sunshine Coast, yeah. south of Noosa, near Clive Palmer's Dinosaur Park. Yeah. But uh, lately he's been spending a lot more time near his brother Paul. I think that they should be worried. The many very serious allegations levelled against them, um, police will at least be laying charges over the uh, sexual assaults that they're accused of perpetrating. But for Chris, you know, the murder would be a really serious worry. And I believe that it's more likely than not that he would be charged um, after 36 years, which would be an incredible outcome. But it will give him a chance to finally acquit himself if yeah. Yeah. he's innocent as he asserts and he should enjoy, you know, under our legal system, you know, the benefit of presumption of innocence. The problem for him, though, is that his two inquests run by judicial officers who are magistrates have led to him having a presumption of guilt. Mm. So he's in this really weird place and uh, I think a trial before jurors or if they've all listened to the podcast, yeah. which I think it's really unlikely, but, <laughs> but if they have to pick up on what you guys were saying before, you know, before a judge alone would be a good way to finally end this nightmare yeah. for Lynn Dawson's family and friends and for Chris and Paul Dawson's families and friends and for them. Yeah, right. Mm. Well, we, we look forward to seeing what happens there. And, and it sounds like you were the perfect person for it because you were just young enough to remember it happening and but not yet old enough to have been part of the system that had already failed to cover it anyway. Yeah. So um, let's just see if the if the new new era of uh, judicial system is uh, is is onto it.
great all right thanks for coming up uh to the queensland desert mate it's been uh it's been an honor to have you up here thank you very much for having me no worries let's have a beer yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs>